Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Favarez begins a new series about advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have no interest in reading about the martyrs of church history, it probably tells me a lot about how you understand Christianity. We're commissioned with something that's going to be necessarily embroiled in conflict. That's worth studying. That's worth remembering. Because it can be the fuel for us and the preparation for us facing the challenges that we have this week. Happy New Year, and welcome to Focal Point. I'm Dave Drewy. Glad you could join us at the start of 2024 as we launch a month-long series in Acts chapter 8 called Gospel Advance. Today, Pastor Mike Fabares looks at the early church described in the book of Acts to reveal what moved the first Christians to spread the gospel. And he'll explain why it's the same thing that will motivate us as we face an increasingly anti-Christian culture. Well, now here's Pastor Mike with a message called Motivated by the Martyrs. As kids growing up two miles from the beach, me and my friends naturally used to watch uh, surfing videos. It would always motivate us, right? We would watch these guys kind of tearing up the waves here in Southern California or Hawaii, and we would uh, get motivated. I would even be motivated to take my $10 garage sale surfboard and get to the bus stop and find my way on the Orange County One bus down to the beach, and it was motivating. But there's something that we would never watch to motivate us to go surfing, and that would be watching films of surfers dying. That would not get us excited about putting on wetsuits and going surfing. That just sounds like odd and morbid. And yet, as Tertullian put it in the second century about the church, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, the execution of Christians by the authorities, that is the thing that just has fueled and motivated the church. And that's such a strange and paradoxical thing, isn't it? To see people saying that that really just motivates people to get out there when they hear of and see of, and when it happens that Christians are executed because of their loyalty to Christ. Now, how is it that executions of Christians can in some way, at least used to be, that it would motivate Christians to live the Christian life? Well, in part, the answer is because Christianity isn't surfing. (laughs) It's not surfing. It's not sailing. Christianity is not laying out by the pool, all of which are things that you hope to do without a lot of harassment if you're going to take a Sunday afternoon to do those things. Christianity, at least according to God in the Bible, is a uh, war. It's a battle. It's a conflict. It's a kind of conflict in battle that is going to necessarily involve these things. And it's more akin, I suppose, to soldiers or Marines contemplating the reality of Memorial Day and being motivated to do what they do. That that, that makes more sense than watching videos of surfers dying and saying, well, I want to go surfing. See, the reality of the Christian life is one that is filled with these things, opposition to a message that we are tasked in our lifetime to take to the ends of the earth, starting with your neighbors and your coworkers. That message is going to be necessarily opposed, and Jesus kept warning us that there's going to be opposition in our culture. There's going to be pushback 
spiritually that you can't even see a spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, to put it in terms of Ephesians 2. All of that is going to be pushing you back as the gospel expands. The gates of hell are going to get more and more barbed to prevent that. And even a battle within our own flesh, our own timidity, our own fear, it's going to fight against this this tasking of getting the message to our world, and in our case, our generation. And that's going to be a hard thing. And that's why I'm willing to go so far as to say, if you have no interest in the persecuted church, or you have no interest in reading about the martyrs of church history, it probably tells me a lot about how you understand Christianity. To the extent that you sweep those things under the rug, and you think, well, I don't know why I would ever read about those poor guys that got slaughtered by the government or by people that were hostile toward their beliefs, why would I ever be interested in reading about that? Well, it makes me think that perhaps you don't understand what this is. The Christian life, I mean, we're called to be good soldiers of Christ Jesus. We're commissioned with something that's going to be necessarily embroiled in conflict. And so it should be that we should look at these things that have happened in the lives of others that are happening right now in the lives of people even increasingly so in one form or another in our own country and culture, and say that's worth looking at, that's worth studying, that's worth remembering, because it can be the fuel for us and the preparation for us facing the challenges that we have this week. So I want to be prepared. You and I cannot afford to be ill-prepared for the pushback, the hostility, the kind of defense that the world is going to throw at us when we understand the offensive nature And I mean that in terms of the proactive nature of taking a message to this world, advancing the gospel in our age. So I want us to do what I think God would expect all of us to do, and that is to be motivated by even the martyrs of the church, which I would propose was very much the fuel, as Tertullian put it, for the early church. They recognized the martyrs that were dying at the hands of either the Jewish leaders, as Stephen was in Acts 7, or the Roman officials later through a series of, of chapters of persecution, they said, well, this is just it's doing nothing but resolving us to be unyielding about Christ. So take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 8 as we look at the response to Stephen's death. That's where we ended our study. We took eight weeks to look at Stephen's sermon We tried to piece that together to understand all that was trying to be communicated about the anticipation in the Old Testament of the coming of Christ and how those people, the generation of those Jewish leaders that were calling for Christ to be executed and handing him over to the Roman officials to be killed on the cross, that they were rejecting God's answer and solution. The Savior and the King and the Master was being rejected, and Stephen wasn't going to yield and bend and agree with their view of Christ. He was going to present the accurate view of Christ, and he paid with his life. And there was someone there, it says in Acts chapter 8, in verse number 1, that was giving full approval to this. So you follow along, I'll read this from the English Standard Version. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And Saul approved of his execution. Now, if you know your Bible, you know the basics of the book of Acts. You know there was a man named Saul of Tarsus, who we're going to learn a little bit about in verse 3 here, that was persecuting the church. But he would become, in chapter 9, through a conversion experience, as God got a hold of his life and said, stop kicking against the goads here. Stop persecuting me, which he meant, in that case, my church. He ends up getting converted and becoming the Apostle Paul. But he was giving full approval to the death and the martyrdom of Stephen. 
And there arose, middle of verse 1, on that day a great persecution. Not a small thing, not pushback, not just a few disparaging comments on social media. This was a big persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. They were hanging in there in Jerusalem. Now, devout men, verse 2, buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul wanted to see more of it. Saul was ravaging the church. He was entering house after house. And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It says, now those, that personal pronoun, pointing back to verse number one, who were scattered, went about preaching the word. So even as we look at verse four, we start to understand, well, the positive nature of what is happening in the wake of the persecution of the church and specifically the catalytic kind of experience of having Stephen be stoned to death by the leaders of Israel, all of that became something that moved the church into these concentric circles. As we learned in Acts chapter one, that was Christ's commission to them. It says, go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So we see in verse number one, Saul, who's cheering this all on, more on that in a minute, there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And the only people who are going to be less left there, at least generally speaking, are the apostles who are following Christ. But all the rest of it says they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Last time we saw that phrase, Judea and Samaria, it was Christ telling them to go be my witnesses. Which, by the way, is a helpful kind of linguistic understanding for us to have when we use the word martyr. Martyr is a transliteration of the word witness, right? Martus is the Greek word. We translate into the word witness, but we transliterate into the word martyr. It's, the word, it's like the word angelos in the Greek New Testament. We just say the word angel, but what we mean is a messenger, in that case, from heaven. Well, here we have a witness, and he's witnessing as he's dying. He's witnessing to the fact that this is true. He's witnessing the fact that I believe this. He's witnessing to the fact that he's unyielding in his commitment to it. And even if you torture him, even if you kill him, he's not going to, he's not going to give. He's not going to give in. He's not going to compromise. That's the witness of martyrdom. That's the witness of those that are suffering for their faith. And it witnesses to people like, beginning of verse 1, Saul who approved of his execution. Augustine says the church owes Paul to the prayer of Stephen. Think about that. Augustine, fifth century, said the, the church owes Paul. And of course, he's monumental in the effect that he has in the church. We're all still reading the letters that God used him to write, to bring revelation to us, to bring God's truth to us. And here it was at the end of Stephen's life. Look back at the last verse of chapter 7. He's praying that people would be forgiven. He says, as he's falling to his knees and crying out aloud, verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And as we said when we covered that at the end of chapter 7, there's no way for God not to hold sin against people unless they repent and put their trust in Christ. He's praying for conversions as he's testifying in his fidelity to the truth of the gospel and of Christ, and he's praying that people get it right. And there was a guy there holding jackets, holding the cloaks of the people that were throwing rocks at Stephen until he died. And that person, in just a few short chapters we're going to read, comes to faith in Christ, becomes a monumental player in the early church. You need to know what a radical conversion that was and what a huge impact that was. 
And in that sense, Augustine speaking humanly about the fact that if Stephen were not there testifying with his own life, who knows, at least humanly speaking, if we had ever seen an Apostle Paul. Look at the impact of an unyielding Christian. If you're taking notes, I'd like you to put it down that way. Number one, you need to consider the impact of unyielding Christians. When people do not bend, what kind of strength do we derive from that? The early church derived a lot of strength from that. Matter of fact, the thing that got Stephen killed, which was him testifying about the truth, we're going to find in the end of our study this morning in verse number four, they didn't stop doing that. They did that all the more and in more places. They continued to proclaim the word, to preach the word. They were giving that message that Stephen gave and it cost him his life. They weren't going to stop. They were going to redouble their efforts on this. It may look like, as some commentators have rightly put it, like they were refugees from persecution, but they were in fact God's missionaries because just as Christ said, you're going to be my, my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. How did they get to Judea and Samaria? Well, because of the persecution of the church, which was ramped and lit and typified by Stephen's death. This was a catalytic event. The impact of a life that was not going to give in to the cultural demands, which in this case was the Sanhedrin saying, you can't preach that way about Christ. We told Christ he was wrong when he was here. We told your pastor he was wrong when he was here. Hey, Stephen, we're telling you, you're wrong when you're here trying to say that this Jesus was the son of man. We, we, we're not buying it. And he's not backing down. Matter of fact, he's being very clear about it and trying to quote all these Old Testament stories to verify the fact that this is indeed what Moses had prophesied, what everyone in the Old Testament was looking forward to, and I'm telling you, this is it. And you need to believe it. And he ends up dying for that, but what happens? Well, Saul becomes the Apostle Paul. The church starts to become increasingly obedient to the call of Acts 1-8, which is go and be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria, which now they're going to enter into. I don't just think this was an act of self-preservation. If it was, they would have left Jerusalem and been quiet. They didn't leave Jerusalem and quiet. They scattered and they were preaching. Do you ever gain any strength from watching those that are standing up for the truth of the gospel? I, I hope you do. In the scriptures, we see people do that. And I hope there have been those times when you say, man, that makes me want to be stronger about my resolve, my pressure that I received to be quiet, to back down, to sit down, to shut up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to push back against the pushback. You see this, I trust, when you read certain stories of the Bible like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament. And as they stand there with the threat of a fiery furnace, you remember what happened they were told by those saying, bow down to the idol here of Nebuchadnezzar, and they refused, and they were dragged in before the king himself, and as they lit that furnace hotter than it had ever been, here they said, listen, our God is able to deliver us from your hand, but be it known to you that even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to your idol. I know that's often taught in Sunday school for our teenagers, because these were young teenagers that were exiled from Israel to Babylon, that you know what, don't conform to the culture, and that conformity to the culture means you're not going to cuss, you're not going to shoplift, you're not going to smoke weed. I mean, all that, that you know, I, that's really not the temptations I'm assuming you have. You have the temptation of, of not speaking up, of not representing Christ accurately in this world, of bowing down, usually in a way that is passive, not active, which is not, here, take this, drink this, do this, smoke this, but it's, hey, stop talking like you do about this narrow-minded, heavy-handed, 
kind of Bible-thumping Christianity. And I'm, I'm just telling you, the temptations we have to yield are increasing in our culture, and we need to say, wow, what's the impact that unyielding godly people have had on my life, and what's the impact that I could have on others? I tell the story of just my wife and I being in, before we were married, in a college class, in a public speaking class, and we were the first people to finally speak up in the class because our professor was so hostile toward Christianity, he couldn't stop just unleashing on it, and so I finally speak up. Well, I'm confident I'm the only person in the class that is offended by all this. And of course, when we start speaking up, all the people at the breaks during the college class, they say, oh, totally with you, totally with you. And then it starts a little trickle and a little bit more pushback. I can't say it ended well. As a matter of fact, I paid for it in part because I didn't get a good grade and it was a public speaking class. So I would think, I don't know, I was hoping to get a decent grade in the class. And all of that, we saw a movement within this class. As a matter of fact, one of the gals in the class became a Christian before the semester was over because people started then saying, well, we're, we're going to stand up against this. It has this effect, this fortifying effect. We need to see that. The scattered church, they take the gospel no matter what the pressure is. Let me turn you to a passage in Philippians chapter 1 to remind you of how even if you lose your position, even if you lose your influence, even if you lose your friends, you lose your reputation, if you continue to see that your job is to accurately and consistently stand up for the Christ of the Bible, you are going to be successful, which the early church was being, even though it didn't mean they were going to be delivered out of every trial, because certainly Stephen can testify to the fact that he died standing up for Christ. But he was going to fortify a lot of people in the process. Philippians chapter 1. Paul goes to prison. This is called a prison epistle. He's writing from prison. And he says this in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, this is Philippians 1.12, that what has happened to me, what's that? Prison. Has really served to, here's the theme of our, of our, our series here, advance the gospel. That's what it's done. Now, my freedom was limited, but I did not stop speaking about the gospel. It, it's continuing to advance the gospel. How? In two ways. So that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard. The Praetorian Imperial Roman Guard was now hearing it because they got a prisoner that won't shut up about what he's in prison for. He keeps talking about Christ. Just like Stephen testifies to Christ and the people that are physically there listening, including Saul of Tarsus, they hear, and Christ now is known. And it haunted him, by the way. It haunted him that he watched Stephen die. He refers to it when he's talking to Agrippa, when he's in prison later and defending himself before the authorities. And then he writes about it even to Timothy, his protege pastor in Ephesus. And he's talking about how he was a blasphemer and imprisoning people. And I mean, he was working against Christ. And one of those vivid memories was him standing there holding the cloaks while they were throwing rocks at Stephen until he died. The gospel in Christ was preached and the message was advancing because Stephen died. It was advancing even when Paul was in prison. It was known not only to the imperial guard, but all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ, all the other prisoners. Verse 14, here's the second way it happens, just like it did when they moved into Judea and Samaria. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Wow, that's weird, right? The effect of that. They're like now more aggressively going after. Again, it's like watching a a surfing video with people dying. I'm going to go aggressively surf now. What doesn't make any sense? But it makes sense for Christianity because this is a war. And we're going to say, hey, we're going to keep moving. You may silence Stephen. You're not going to silence us. This movement will not be stopped. We're going to continue to speak up for the truth of the gospel. 
Look at the impact of unyielding people. Matter of fact, you go, you go drop down in this passage. He's hoping to get out, it says there in the middle of verse 18. Yes, I will rejoice. Why? For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not all be ashamed, that having full courage, it says, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, which is exactly Stephen's perspective. And you should say, I want Christ to be honored in my job, even if I have it or I lose it. In my relationship, whether it stays civil or whether it turns hostile, whether I live or whether I get in, live in freedom or get imprisoned or whether I live on the planet or get killed, I'm going to seek to glorify Christ, which is not to shut up about Christianity, it's to continue to speak up about Christianity. And that is what was taking place. You see this constantly. Why? Because God is working everything out for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. His plan to go into Judea and Samaria was being accomplished because you had the Sanhedrin killing Stephen. When John Bunyan wouldn't stop preaching and the authorities threw him in prison, he got thrown into prison and he wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. You've heard of it. It became the number three best-selling book in colonial America. And most people, they had three books on their shelf. They had a Bible, they had the Fox's Book of Martyrs, and they had Pilgrim's Progress. And that book did more to impact and shape people in their sanctification and fortify their faith than almost any other book besides the Bible and the Fox's Book of Martyrs. And I want you to think about that. How did that come to be? He could have been out preaching. Instead, he was incarcerated and writing. God knew what he was doing. And God knows what he's doing with you. If you lose your freedoms, if you lose your relationships, if you lose your clients, or if you lose your job. Stephen wasn't trying to be necessarily argumentative or necessarily pejorative. He wasn't trying to be pejorative or argumentative at all in terms of his relationship with those guys. He wanted them to be saved. That's how he ended his life, praying for their salvation. But it was going to cause that, and he wasn't afraid to endure that because he had a sense that that was more important than the peace in his life, and all of that was served to advance the gospel. You're listening to Focal Point in the start of a month-long series in Acts chapter 8 from Pastor Mike Fabares called Gospel Advance. Today's message is titled, Motivated by the Martyrs. And if you want to hear this entire unabridged message, then I invite you to go to our website and fill up on the truth of God's Word at focalpointradio.org or download the Focal Point app to listen anytime. The start of the new year is a great time to set your mind on your priorities for the coming months. And if you're like me, you want your life to have an impact that lasts longer than most New Year's resolutions. So this year, consider setting your resolve on advancing the gospel by becoming a Focal Point Partner. When you sign up to give an automatic gift each month, you're providing the financial strength and stability our ministry needs to expand in 2024. As a Focal Point Partner, not only are you giving to advance the gospel and encourage other believers with solid biblical teaching, but you can also benefit. When you set up your monthly giving amount, you can request to automatically receive the resources that Pastor Mike personally picks each month. For example, this month's featured resource is a highly rated book written by well-known evangelists Josh McDowell and author Thomas Williams titled, How to Know God Exists, Solid Reasons to Believe in God, Discover Truth, and Find Meaning in Your Life. 
Ask for this month's featured resource when you set up your monthly gift or make a one-time donation by calling 888-320-5885. That's 888-320-5885. Or give and request the book online at focalpointradio.org. And if you're not quite ready to give just yet, we'd still like to hear from you. Give us a call and we'll send you a helpful booklet titled 100 Prophecies Fulfilled by Jesus. This easy-to-read booklet demonstrates the 100% accuracy of Bible prophecy and why you can confidently put your trust in the Bible. Get your copy when you get in touch at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Drewey, wishing you a happy new year and inviting you to join us again tomorrow to hear the second part of Pastor Mike's message called Motivated by the Martyrs. That's coming up Tuesday on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. You know, we live in a culture where every point of view demands affirmation. It'd be easy to tell people what they want to hear, but we must teach the Bible accurately, unapologetically, and without compromising and without editing it. God's word is truth. If you want to send me a question, I encourage you to get in touch with us at focalpointradio.org. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.